You're listening to Redefining the Influencer, a podcast about what it means to live service first. I'm your host, Mike Burns. Sometimes you hear the call of service at a very young age and it drives you throughout your entire life. That's true of our next guest, Jessica Feingold. She found her passion for serving others early and has touched many people's lives throughout her work in a number of fields, from volunteering in public health in India, to educating in France, to supporting sustainability efforts in Australia. Jess shares her story of service that has led her around the world and back again as a non-for-profit leader and futurist. Welcome, Jess. How are you doing this morning? Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> Awake, ready for it. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Thanks for joining us this morning on Redefining the Influencer. We're so excited to have you. We'd love to dive in immediately. Just tell us a little bit of background of who Jessica Ann Feingold is. Who am I? I think it's interesting to situate my sense of self today in a world that is changing so much. I am a woman and a writer and a dancer and performer and an advocate and an ally and a friend and someone who spends a lot of time working remotely behind my laptop, furthering social justice causes. Wow. Social justice causes. I think everyone listening is going to be really, really excited to actually hear as we dive deeper and what that means. But talk us a little bit through how you actually entered into just service in general? Well, Mike, I think the use of service and its meaning and its intent, I've been reflecting on that a lot because it's actually a term that I don't use very often. I think an assumption that I've come into this world with is just this idea that we're in a garment of mutuality, if you will, to quote a great man. Um, and everyone is here on a planet, which some days feels like we're doomed to climate change and we're not good to one another. But we actually have this opportunity in this life to note that our fates are tied together and actually do something about that. And so I don't see any of us as being in service to one another. That is our biggest responsibility as human beings is to be together in this way, to build together, to be better to one another and to the earth. And so for me, it's not about an act of service. It's an act of living my life in the way that does the least harm and the most good is in community with individuals around me who feel the same way and also tries to change the minds of folks who don't. Wow. Um, so that's kind of my my feeling about service. That is amazing. So Jess, where are you from? What is your kind of family background? Was there a tie into giving and supporting and community and loving one another that kind of led you down this path? So it's interesting. I'm about to head home this afternoon because I just got a negative COVID test and I'm missing my family. They're only 15 miles from me. So I live right now in Brooklyn, which is a city where my father was born and raised and he grew up and his father and his grandfather and his grandfather before that, all right here in this beautiful borough. But they raised us as children. My parents got married and lived on the Upper West Side. And the idea to raise children in a small apartment was tough. So they went out to Jersey, to the suburbs. So I'm like a very typical suburban kid. I grew up in a really 
surprisingly homogeneous community when you think about um, just the diversity and excitement that is New York City. If you go four miles over the George Washington Bridge, you will find a community that's a little bit like Pleasantville. And I think what appealed to my parents growing up in smaller communities, lower income communities, is that it kind of looked like leave it to beaver is what my mom says. And mm-hmm. so it was their perception of like what it looks like to make it in America. And so being born into that context, like I don't think I had a full appreciation for what my parents had lived through and strove through to get there. I found it homogeneous. I found it unstimulating. I'm a person who is often bored and I found where I was growing up to just not be a place that challenged me or taught me a lot. And so I was itching to get out of there from the moment I was a teen. I love The Little Mermaid. It was one of my favorite movies growing up. Um, and she, by the time she's 16, she's literally ready to leave her world and to go up to the surface and abandon her family for something more. And I was a lot like her. I don't know if like Disney trains us in this, but by the time I was a teen, New Jersey was really not doing it for me in a number of ways. Um, I was really lucky to have grandparents that supported a lot of travel. Um, so I was able to see different parts of the world. Um, I grew up Jewish and I think being Jewish is a big piece of my worldview. Mm-hmm. My father's Jewish. My mother's not. So technically it's a matrilineal, um, religion. Technically I'm not even Jewish, <laughs> but culturally in New Jersey with a name like Jess Feingold, I'm pretty Jewish. Um, and so I had planned to, I think when I was 14, one of my closest friends moved to Israel. And so her dad flew for El Al and this is before 9-11. And so I got on a plane, sat in the cockpit with his friend who was flying the plane from JFK for most of the ride down to Israel. And that was my first time leaving the country. And it was by myself. And I think that summer in Israel taught me a lot of things. I think, well, had my first sip of beer, like things like that went down. Um, But it also brought me closer to a culture. And this is about 50 years about after the establishment of the state of Israel, which back then I was like, 50 years ago, this is an old nation. But now as someone who's like coming up on 50 years, has almost lived that arc, I'm like, wow. I was in a young nation of people who had been through extreme trauma and they were building a society that gave them a place in the world. And it was just an extraordinary place. I mean, the food is fantastic. The beaches are gorgeous. The entire Middle East, I've since been able to travel a lot more in the region. And I just think... um, I understand why there's a level of conflict because it's just such a a place of incredible value, not only for religions, but just a a beautiful place and context. So my time I spent in the Middle East definitely broadened my horizons, especially as like a teenager scrapping to get out. And I had planned to go back to Israel, um, but things heated up that summer with Hezbollah along the border. And so they Mm -hmm. pivoted the trip the last minute to a Jewish history tour took us through 10 countries in Europe. I don't know who gets to go to 10 countries as a 16-year-old. It was insane. But the compare and contrast with what life was like in Israel to seeing all of these different parts of Europe, I think, really opened up my eyes to the fact that, like, I knew I had been in a bubble. I think The Little Mermaid had showed me I was in something like that. Um, But actually being in these new cultural contexts, I think showed me that the world was really big. And then I wanted to be a global citizen and just be part of it. Um, so that's kind of like the early pieces, of the upbringing. And I would say the idea just Judaism is so ingrained in me that sometimes I don't understand where a motive of mine is coming from a Jewish precept, but ideas like tikkun alam, healing the world are just core mitzvah. You give every single week. I've 
taught Hebrew at Hebrew school, volunteered at the temple, spent a lot of time in like the temple kitchen eating bagels with friends. And so the idea of community, service, this religion that I was a part of that had been through such trauma and I think was just trying to find itself and being growing up Jewish in the 80s and 90s, it was just, I think, there was a caution about the type of world we could end up in if things took a left turn. And there was just like this gratitude for being in a time of, I mean, economic prosperity. And it was America in the 80s and 90s. It was, I kind of missed it. It was blissfully ignorant. Well, you know, it's really interesting because there's one thing to expand your world lens, right? There's one thing to understand where your center is, but it's a completely different thing to actually act and move on what you now know. Talk me through, like, what were the steps to action? How hard was it to get up, move? How hard was it to transition to what you truly believed in? I think I've always been someone who's lived my truth, and I think I've gotten much better at that, even in the last, I'd say, three to five years. I'm a lot more stubborn, and I'm very uncompromising, and I won't do things that mix with my values. Um, so I think I was always like that to an extent. But it's funny, I was on Gmail yesterday and by accident, Gmail had clicked me all the way back to the first emails I sent rather than like the most recent ones in my inbox. And I was like, what are all these emails from 2007? And who is just in 2007? I got Gmail because I had just graduated college. And when I graduated, I remember a lot of my friends doing recruiting for consulting firms, Um, my university sends the most people to Wall Street of any university. And so in terms of like where the values were and then being near DC, a lot of uh, children are, a lot of students are folks of diplomats and will go into the family business of politics. So thinking about where my peers were going, I think was a moment where I understood how different my upbringing was and the expectations were for me. Nobody told me I was supposed to go to McKinsey and recruit. Nobody told me I was supposed to go to Wall Street and make money. In fact, like, the family that I have and the professions that we valued had more to do with health and healthcare and social service and justice and nonprofit work. And so there was zero expectation for me to go that traditional path. I would say I didn't understand what tradition was. But then in meandering and trying to find out what it was I was to do, um, I just started doing a lot of volunteering. That first year out of school was a year full of volunteering. And even going through Gmail, I'd forgotten. There were a few that I completely like erased from my part of the story. In the first couple months out of school, I was working. Um, my university now has a department of public health. And I eventually went on to get a public health degree elsewhere. But I was helping them start that program and scope out, like, what could a global health fellows program look like? What are the countries people could study abroad in? And I was working with the office of the registrar. No recollection of having done this, but the email receipts helped me remember. I was working for a um, AIDS services organization in town who were working with folks living with HIV. And that's where I started doing HIV testing and counseling, which is actually something I did through graduate school, put me through graduate school. And so being there, and I had just come out of an internship where I worked at the UVA Cancer Center. I also have a minor in religion. So it was the integration of religion and religious studies with purpose in medicine and service and really trying moments in people's lives. I think all of that as a recent graduate, just like trying stuff on, helped me figure out a little bit of what was going to work for me and what wasn't. And so from there, I ended up volunteering in France as a French educator in 
India as a public health sort of like core public health service person. And then I went to the beautiful country of Australia, where I worked with the Department of Sustainability and Environment and built a lot of trailheads and cleaned up a lot of oceans. And by the time that year had wrapped up, I had tried my hands voluntarily in so many different things. And it was 2008. And so I'm coming back into like a non-job market with a bunch of skills that are not valued in our economy. Like I could build a trail. I could test you for HIV and counsel you through a hard time. I could be with you in your dying moments. I could do a lot of things that are, I think, as societally valued, but I wasn't getting any sort of job. I applied to 80 jobs, got not a single interview, and then bopped it back to graduate school. I realized that higher education has been a great place to weather previous economic issues. I worry about today when we are in such a crisis of our pandemic economy and higher education. I don't know if folks will be able to weather this one out in higher ed, but that is definitely what I did in 2008. Um, so I ended up back in school studying public health. First of all, the Gmail thing and the timing is awesome. I just wonder what Mike Burns's, I guess it might have been AOL, not even Gmail, would have said uh, back when he was uh, graduating high school, moving on to college, trying to figure himself graduating college. But it's so great. I'm sure it allowed you to kind of reminisce and really think through the journey that you've taken. And the journey is absolutely remarkable. So it's led you to a place which is today. What are you doing today? And how do you continue to live this life of giving back and making the world better? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many twists and turns. So that part of the story leaves us off 13 years ago. And I think my dear comments around just what's in my Gmail my sentence structure, like the way I spoke, I was like, oh my gosh, nothing has changed. I am that person and that is how I write and think and talk. But the content, I mean, I was so uncertain. There was a whole email thread when I said I'm moving to New Zealand and all my friends wished me a goodbye. I've never been to New Zealand. So like what kind of ruse was I pulling on them and myself? I was very uncertain. I did not have a plan. I definitely fronted like I knew what was going on. And I think flash forward 13 years, I've now spent time living, working in 44, 45 countries of the world. Worked at our office in East Africa. I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, started a nonprofit based in India, um, helped my friend up in the Bronx start a nonprofit here in New York. I worked for a think tank, and then I went deeply into microfinance, spent a lot of time in Indonesia. And here I am today. I'm working right now building a think and do tank. So there's this idea um, that I've studied called framework change. If you think about like LGBTQ rights and how certainly in the last decade, attitudes have gone from like zero to 100. And with that came marriage equality. The idea of framework change is basically when like there is uh, a societal tipping point around an idea. And so one thing I've thought a lot about is how do we take new ideas and bring them? to that for. With our Think and Do Tank, um, it's called Common Future. So the idea that our fates are tied together, um, mm -hmm. it's a name and a brand and concept that I've been building. And I think it's very much now that you know a little bit more about my personality, you can sort of see where I'm coming from with that one. Yes. Um, but Common Future is a place where practitioners who are building a better economic tomorrow can come and experiment. And we can take those ideas out of the box and use them to influence policy and practice because these ideas should carry and some of them are very old. There's a lot of indigenous wisdom about how to work economically in a balanced ecosystem with the earth. 
these concepts that are more equitable and create wealth for people and their families, they're really old. But in our capitalist society in America, they aren't given much weight or attention. And so we can speak about this moment that we're in. I like to call them the triplet crises. We're in a pandemic. We're in an economic depression, if you will. And we're in a moment of serious uprising in the movement for Black lives. And so with my public health degree and the work I've done in microfinance and financing and sort of financial innovation, as well as the fact that we're a Black-led organization with majority staff and board and network of color. And so I get to sort of live at the intersection of all of these moments and actually squarely like that is what Common Future is doing and that is where our work is. So every day of the last four months has been just, it's been a moment to respond to the crisis because certainly if you remember that week, the second week of March, we serve folks who serve small businesses and every small business in this country closed. A lot of them are food businesses and our food system. Our food supply chains were shutting down. And so we have been deploying emergency funding to frontline workers, farmers of color. We did a round of funding recently for Black-led organizations um, working on economic justice. So we've deployed about a million and a half of funds in the last three months. And we have another two and a half million that are going up. So we need flexible capital for folks to reimagine and actually prototype what a more equitable economy can look like. And so that's what the $4 million does. It's our reimagined fund. It's helping frontline leaders, 27 mostly POC leaders as of today, just actually build and do the work that they're doing and bring that back to us and bring that back to the world so that we can share more of that. And then the next phase is restructure. Like we cannot go back. This country was not functional, and I think this virus exploited each and every dysfunction, but we have to respond, reimagine, restructure. We have to build something completely different, and that's not going to take four million in resources. That's going to take, I think one thing this crisis taught me is that trillions are available. Trillions with a T are available to be rapidly deployed to the front lines. To restructure a better economy, we need to deploy money at that scale. And I now know it's possible. So it's the project of our lifetime. And I don't think we have a choice about it. So sign up. <laughs> and, and I agree. We, we, we don't have a choice. And the work you're doing is so important. You talked about your paths and how you had multiple paths. And then there was a point of intersection. And that point of life intersection has really prepared you to do what you're doing now. And I think people think that reaching an objective or making an impact is very linear, that you go down one consistent path and it will lead to a place where you make an impact. But what you've really shown is you've gone down multiple paths and all the multiple paths have brought you value in the form of insights and learning. But really where those paths intersected is where you are now and where you're really being able to really uh, add a whole bunch of value to what you're doing. Kind of walk us through a little bit of the challenges that you face in this space right now. What was a surprise? What were you not expecting and how did you overcome? Mm, a challenge in the space. Well, I think there's so much, especially related to my professional path. I mean, challenges abound, but I could not have mapped out that my being would sit at the intersection of these triplet crises in this moment and I would be equipped to do a thing. Like that's not something I could have planned. I did not plan for a pandemic and to have a master's in public health. I did not plan for a second economic crisis 
one that's probably going to be worse than the Great Depression with seemingly no end, less than 10 years after the last one that stalled me out and actually sent me back to graduate school. And I have planned for and should have planned for a real advancement in civil rights in this country because that's been clear to me that things are inequitable from the get-go. And growing up in the suburbs really teaches you that people can, I think, sequester themselves away from what America looks like to everyone's detriment. So I think it's ironic how life has prepared me for this really horrible moment. But there are a lot of challenges. I think about like my own career path and just the uncertainty that I've felt. As an entrepreneur, I've had to build every step of the way. Coming out of graduate school, it was 2010 and things were not easy to find a job either. And so I had spent this time at school for public health and also part of an accelerator program at the business school, starting a venture um, called Life Improving Ventures or LIVE, um, because I had been working in India with the Planned Parenthood partner there and saw that the issue of menstrual hygiene, which is another issue that's gotten a lot of attention, there's even a short film that won an Oscar about it last year, but in South Asia and actually in many parts of the world, but in South Asian context particular, it's pretty taboo time of the month when it's that time of the month. Um, you're not meant to prepare food. Sometimes you stay in a separate home. And I mean, I'm a woman. It's It can be messy. It's a messy time of the month. And so to feel that sick and that much pain and then to be apart from friends and family and unable to participate in religious ceremony, there's been numerous examples of young women dying in these isolation cabins, essentially, when they are menstruating. There's been infections that they get because you can't really dry out your menstrual cloths or pads in ways that are clean and safe and in the sunlight. Um, and then there's a lot of missed days of school because there's a lot of shame and there's a lack of equipment to actually get to school during that time. Um, so I worked on that venture and came out of graduate school and found that we were still in a recession. So I went straight back to India and continued building that venture and figured like this could be something I could raise attention for and raise money. And I wanted it to be my full-time gig. I had two co-founders and a small board and we won a couple business plan competitions. We raised a few grants. We were never able to salary anyone. So here I am building something that I believe in. But I've got student loans now and a ticking clock on that. And at the time, I did not know how to create from an idea a sustainable venture that could create livelihoods and jobs for myself and others. Then I helped my friend up in the Bronx start this organization called Move This World, which it's social emotional learning through dance. And as I mentioned earlier, I am a dancer and a lifelong dancer. She and I danced together in school. Um, and she was my former roommate. Helping her start this venture was my first glimpse into like, this can be a real job creator because within six months she was able to quit her day job and lead Move This World full-time. She still does. So that showed me that you could build a team and she's got a team of probably 20 folks now and it's no longer a nonprofit, it is now an ed tech firm because raising funds and scaling ventures is hard to do in the nonprofit space when you're reliant on philanthropy. You're reliant on people resonating with your story. You're reliant on like their goodwill, which changes at a whim. They may fund one thing one year and have a completely different epiphany the next year based on a play they saw. Withdraw your funding and who knows? And I mean, weathering philanthropy, which is still a thing I do, and we can say a lot about both weathering and influencing and changing philanthropy for the better. 
show me that you can build a venture, but my gosh, nonprofits, if this is what a very networked young entrepreneur, this is all she can achieve with this many limitations. Like, what does it look like for anyone else who, as we know, I think like people of color get about 2% of VC funding. So when you look at the funding landscape, it's just, there is inequities abounding and it's hard for everyone. So funding ventures seemed really hard to me. Um, that's probably one of the biggest challenges of my life, although I think I've gotten better at it. That's probably been the thing I've tried to crack the most. So I went and worked for um, a think and do tank in DC. And that was a place where I got to work with, they have a network of 3000 entrepreneurs. And so I just got to spend a couple of years talking with entrepreneurs who actually employed themselves and actually built quality jobs in service to other people. And it was badass, but all of them were struggling. Um, most of these incredible social entrepreneurs, most of their ventures have less than 10 people in them. And they're tackling things like sex trafficking, human trafficking. Um, they're tackling things like climate change with 10 or fewer people. You tell me what group of 10 citizens, no matter how well armed, are going to change the world. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, these ideas need a lot more funding. They need a lot more infrastructure. They need coalition building. No one enterprise or venture is going to do it. And I admire the leaders doing it, but like the funding model for world change, like it's nonsensical. So then I went to work for a micro lender, a venture called Kiva. And that was again, funding entrepreneurs around the world funded over, I think, 2 million entrepreneurs um, in 85 countries. It's pretty remarkable work. They've lent more than, I think it's like $1.5 billion at this point, but money doesn't solve every problem for the entrepreneur either. And so now what I'm working on at Common Future is, yes, building an enterprise that's sustainable. And so we're about a $2.5 million organization now. We have a staff of 16 and trying to grow that from 16 to 30 to 45 and build real coalitions. So trying to figure out how to resource Common Future, which is a pretty small entity and needs some scaling, and trying to resource the fellows in our network, the $4 million we've deployed in like just the last few months, and then knowing that like $6 million of impact is not going to do anything in the world. I'm still now working with philanthropy on this idea of, we call it like moving money or shifting capital. Like I want philanthropy to look at their balance sheet. And to figure out how they're grant making, because grant making is only, and a lot of folks don't know this, but if you have a foundation, there's a minimum payout of 5%. But actually for most foundations, I mean, like name a foundation and then look it up. Most foundations use that as the maximum. And so most foundations spend only 5% of their money in a year. 95% of foundation endowments is typically in Wall Street. 5% is going to salaries and grants. What the heck is going on here? We're in a crisis and people are still hoarding and sitting on their money. And those who make it in philanthropy, they made it because they accumulated wealth in ways that are usually extractive and they're still sitting on it. Um, so just a lot of advocacy around like, do people know what foundations are? Are they wholly good? Are their assets aligned to their mission? Are their assets being invested on Wall Street or in black and brown businesses and entrepreneurs? A lot of what's happening in philanthropy is just normative. There's no reason for it. Everyone is so risk averse when there's no type of capital that could actually be more flexible and innovative than philanthropy. It's literally money that's already got a tax break from people who are too wealthy to even hold on to it. It's supposed to go to service. It is money intended for service. Use it. Use it towards service. Like liberate the capital, get it out there. It is just sitting there. So I spend, you can tell I'm really riled up about it. <laughs> I've been a fundraiser now for 15 years. I'm trying to build sustainable ventures. They've got all these challenges that I've outlined earlier. 
And on the other side of it, our society has a lot of brilliant people in service who are like ready to patchwork together the change, but it doesn't need to be a patchwork. These ideas and attempts don't need to be small. They can be well-funded and also we're going to need to work together. So when I look at real movements, including the movement for Black Lives right now, like where is an infusion of capital that I think is necessary to create a next wave of civil rights and economic change in this country? So I spend a lot of my time working on these challenges, frustrated by these challenges, because I'm, it, it's all just will. It's will, it's imagination. We've already got the tools. You dropped a whole bunch of knowledge, a whole bunch of knowledge, and you've experienced a whole bunch in this space. For the thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people out there who are still trying to figure out how they can be of service to others and don't know the first dot that is necessary to touch before you go to the second, the third, and the fourth, what advice would you give them? How do they get involved in giving back and impacting lives and serving others? Yeah. I'd say like not everyone will have the opportunities I've had in the really unique intersections I've had that have put me in this seat at this moment to do these things. And while I'm working on the system and getting riled about is philanthropy effective, that's not everyone else's job. I mean, as citizens, there is so much else we can do on the day to day. And I think that that's where it starts. I was reading the other day, we're partners with a company that's invested in a gleaning organization. And I didn't know what the word gleaning meant. So we look at the food crisis right now and the supply chains and issues in this country. And industrial farming, as I understand it, is really inefficient. So if there's a field full of blueberries, the industrial like farming tools will come through and pick it out. But there's still stuff growing for later harvest and there's still stuff missed. And so the idea of gleaning is that there's these organizations now, and it's basically they need thousands of volunteers because there is food that is in fields that's deliberately systemically usually not even picked. But right now there's a lot of hungry folks. And so they need people to volunteer and glean food from fields because as we look at some of those, and I know we've all seen them in the New York Times, the lines at the food banks and just like the absence of food security in this country. I think they said one in four children in New York City is food insecure right now. I mean, there is food that literally is going to waste. And then looking across the supply chain, it's like, okay, people bought too many cans at the beginning of the pandemic. Everyone knows this. Food banks really could use your cans right now. Um, so just really, I think, like looking at the opportunities you have, um, it takes a lot of hands. It takes a lot of people and it takes only a few hours of time to pick up some of these places where the system has completely dropped off. And so I think that's one way. Oh, and the other way, of course, would be to join in solidarity, in protest, if you're safe, if you're able to, if you can keep social distance. I know there's a lot of constraints around it, but we are in the streets demonstrating in a way that's never happened before in America and it's losing steam. Be a good ally and keep this movement going because my friends and I were joking about this. If it gets too hot out for people to protest and it peters out, we have lost a massive opportunity. So I hope the weather changes and I hope people get back out into the streets because this was not a moment this is like a movement and it needs to feel that way. So you can do that with a bicycle and a free afternoon. Wow. Jessica Ann Feingold. Really, really appreciate your time. The authenticity, the honesty, the walk along your journey of life. So much 
great informational insight and nuggets of inspiration. Really appreciate it. Any last thoughts you want to leave with all the listeners? I mean, I want to loop back to your earlier question around just like life in service, careers in service. How do you even get into service? And I coach a lot of my younger colleagues who have said to me things like, my work at Common Future doesn't make sense on my resume. Like, what's this thing I'm working on? And how am I going to parlay this into being like assemblywoman? How am I going to parlay this into being a business leader? Everyone needs to stop caring about what kind of sense the step does or doesn't make on your resume. Your life is not a linear story. And I think you know it in every other aspect. So I don't know why your career should be so linear. And the jobs of the future, the jobs of tomorrow, they don't even exist today, nor do they make sense to other people. The edges of knowledge, where the gaps are, where government is failing, like it doesn't look like any particular thing. And people need to be less concerned about the vanity of what does it mean to other people and more, what can I do literally right now? There's a million ways to get involved. There's a million ways to get started. And if you do one thing and it's not your thing, like hospital chaplaincy when I was 21 years old, it doesn't have to stick. So just get into it. Like there is so much opportunity to be involved with one another in this garment of mutuality. Get involved, do this work together, and you will figure out a way to find not only meaning, but actually make real change. Thanks so much, Jess. Really appreciate your time. Jess's story influences us to look at our life's path and understand that happiness and purpose are part of a journey, not simply destinations. Not every decision or action has to represent an endpoint, but rather each experience should be embraced in mind for lessons that allow us to gain a deeper understanding of who we are so we are better equipped to make a difference in the present and the future. Continue to be unapologetically kind and make this world a better place one act of service at a time. Thank you for listening. Before we go, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and visit our website, liveservicefirst.com to learn more about Jessica's incredible story of service. This podcast is brought to you by Service First and produced by Human Group Media. I'll catch you all again this time next week.